I think one of the things we do is, is we have this concept of how God works with us. If I'm, maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I'll just share with you what I do, and maybe some of you can identify with it. I'm, I'm tempted sometimes to just think, well, you know, God did that for me, and now, or told me something, or I see something, a word, now I'm responsible, and we are responsible. Now I've just got to go on and do it, and I've got to kind of walk out that. But every day is a, new, is a relationship with God. You ever, ever come, you know, go have a nice vacation or, or a wonderful time with your family or something and you begin to get towards the end of it and you start dreading it, that it's, oh my goodness, this is over and now I've got to go back to home or back to my regular routine. I, I used to struggle with that, you know. I almost wondered, it was almost worth not going on vacations because as soon as I went, went I started think, worrying about coming home. And I was, that's kind of stupid. That's not very smart. And so I began to, God began to open my eyes to, to having a different perspective, which is I walk with him every day. Do you realize how exciting that is? Yeah. You, you walk with the creator of the universe, living in you every day. The Bible says that his mercies are new in Lamentations chapter 3. His mercies are new, fresh, every morning. So every day is a fresh opportunity with God. Do you realize the opportunities that this day is filled with? Every challenge, every obstacle, every thing that comes in your life to frustrate you and stop you is an opportunity to see what God will do with that, with that in your life. It's an opportunity. This today is filled with opportunities to know Him better to experience Him and to know Him more closely and to see how good He is and how wonderful He is. Psalm, I think it's 32 or 34, says, Taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. That taste means to experience for yourself. It's one thing, you know, there's a couple restaurants around here we'll go into and, you know, they always put, have a case there with with the desserts and the cakes are always this big. And this round, you know, and as you're walking in hungry for something good for you, you have to walk past the banana cream pie, which is stuffed up like this, and the, the chocolate, death by chocolate cake, which is 14 layers or something, you know, it's this high and this around, you got to walk, but they're in a case, fortunately, they're in a case that you can't get to, but they're trying to whet your appetite. Because what they're saying is taste and see that the chocolate layer cake is good. So I order it by faith. (laughs) Trusting that it's good. But the Bible says that if we just believe and don't act, it's not faith. Faith without works is dead. So it's not enough just to order it by faith. You've got to take that fork and... I lost some of you already. (laughs) And taste and see. But there's some of you that are just looking at God and His what He's done for you through that glass case. And you hear stories of other people about how good He is and what He's done for them. And you come to church and you read your Bible and you listen to the CDs and things and you hear about how good, but you haven't really experienced His goodness in your life personally, for you. And so your relationship with him is limited because you're living it to some degree through other people. And that's not bad. It's just that you need to grow beyond that. You, you need to sit down at the table and you need to open, your, open the menu, which is sitting in your lap right now. And you need to begin to take issues in your life right now 
Now, I wasn't planning to talk about this at all. Issues in, that are in your life right now. See, God deals with where you are and what you're going through. And He can handle it. And take those issues and take the Scriptures and then just bring them to Him and expect Him to serve the, the chocolate cake to the table. Expect Him to come through. Trust Him. And if things don't look like He's coming through right away, don't quit. Don't give. That's why a lot of people don't receive. They give up on God. They don't give Him time because God's not waiting. You're not waiting on God. He's waiting on you. He's waiting on you. We're talking on Wednesday nights about faith. I just can't urge you enough to listen to that series because where we're headed and where God's calling us as a church and the things that are facing the world out there, we're going to need to know how to live by faith and walk by faith. So God is preparing us and training us. And so, so you, have, you get to know Him. Taste and see how good God is. Every day is exciting. Get up out of the morning. Praise God. It's a new chance to walk with you to God. I don't care what you're facing. It's, it's not too big for God. It's not too big for God. If, even if you have a failure, God can bring you through the failure. And out of the failure, learn things and pick you up. See, there's no failures with God. As long as you don't quit, He'll get you through. As long as you don't quit, he'll get you through. Just don't quit. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, just don't quit. And keep coming back to him and coming back to him and he'll get you through. Well, open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to go on with our study of growing up, which is really our theme for this year and, and maybe even beyond this year. But we've been talking, well, let's just read through it. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And we've talked about this. I'm not going to go back over that. With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, down in verse 11, he tells you what those gifts are. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Those gifts are given to the church for the purpose set forth in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and the work of the ministry is the edifying of the body of Christ. We've talked before that the saints are all of us, not just somebody in a stained glass window. It's not somebody that a committee has voted and say they are a special person. They've done special things for God. Therefore, they're a saint. The word saint actually means in the Greek language, which this was written in, somebody who's been set apart. And you have been set apart if you belong to Christ, and therefore, you are a saint. Now, you may not be acting saintly, But you can be something and not be acting like it. We talked last week, you can be married and not be acting like it. So the way you're acting does not necessarily determine what you are. But if you begin to discover who you are, that will change how you act. For the equipping of the saints. So the ministry gifts are given to equip all of us so that we can do the work of the ministry. Some translations say service. The Greek word there literally means to serve or be a table waiter. So ministry is nothing. Ministry is not a profession. It's an action. 
And the word means to serve someone else. Ultimately, it means to serve the Lord. The work of the service for the edifying and the service of the ministry's purpose is the building up the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, that means mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we've talked about what this is saying is the work of the saints. All of us, we have a calling. Every one of us has a calling. And as we work together to carry out that calling, what will happen is we will cause the body to be built up or strengthened until it comes to we individually and collectively as a body here until we literally come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And we've talked about how astonishing that is, but God's blueprint of where He wants to take you and where He wants to mold you into is to change you into the image of Christ so that you talk like Him, walk like Him, think like Him, and act like Him. And we've already established that's not so astounding because that is your nature. Because when you came to Christ, God literally took His nature and birthed His nature in you. That's how you became a child of God. It's not so astonishing that a child should have his father's nature. So if you are a child of God, in order to become a child of God requires that you have His nature on the inside But we've already established you don't automatically act like who you are. And that's why Paul begins this chapter by saying, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, to walk, act like who you really are. And we've spent time going back and showing you who you really are. And the chapter 1 of Ephesians just lays out what God's done for you. And then we went on and began to establish over the last few weeks that part of who we are is who we are in relationship to one another, not just to Him. That we are the body of Christ. And we're going to go over, we're going to close this phase out with some scriptures this morning. And then I'll just finish these verses and, and then we'll go on. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, cunning craftiness and deceitfulness, deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. You're a joint. You're a part of his body. And you are been called and ordained by God to supply something to his body. And so Paul goes on to say, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, thereby causing the growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. I want to go back over and just give you some scriptures right now. We're going to, I'm going to go, go we're going to, so we're going to look at a lot of scriptures this morning, but that's okay, it won't hurt you. Let's go and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to just give you some other scriptures that establish that we are the body of Christ. That's literal. That's how God sees us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 27. Now. When? Now. Not when we get to heaven. Not in the sweet by and by. But right now. Sitting in that blue chair. This Sunday morning. At Faith Christian Center. 
You are the body, the physical. This is not symbolism. This is not some symbol. This is literally how God sees us. We talked last week that on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, on his way to arrest the Christians, that part of the body of Christ that was at Damascus, he was on his way to seize and arrest that party of the body of Christ that was in Damascus and or bring them down to Jerusalem to be, to be tried, the head of the church stops him on the road and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he sees, saw those believers in Damascus as literally part of him. And he sees you and me this morning literally as part of his body. So we are, not symbolically, not as some metaphor, we are his physical body on the earth today. You understand that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says that in a number of places. He's there making intercession for us. Romans 8 says that. Hebrews says that. Ephesians chapter 2 says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So he's not physically on the earth other than that he is physically here represented by his body, which is you and me, and you and me collectively together. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 22. Well, let's just go up here a little bit. Well, I have to keep going up. (laughs) What the verses before this saying is he raised him up and seated him in heavenly places. Verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he lives his life through you. He, his calling, his purpose, and his life is fulfilled through his body, which is you which is us together. We are the body of Christ on the earth. Go over to chapter 5 of Ephesians. Verse 30. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks because he uses marriage as an example of what it is like to be individuals who are joined together and been made one. But he's not talking about marriage there. He's using that as an example. Verse 30, he brings that out. For we are members, that means parts, of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members or parts of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You literally are his body on the earth. Romans chapter 12. 
verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, in other words, just as we have different parts of our body, but it's still one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Because we are parts of His body and there's just one body, that means we're also part of each other. And that's his point here. That's Romans 12, 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 28. Well, I'll go back to verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means joined into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. We've talked before about when you come to Christ, you lose your background, your heritage. I know you have one. I'm not saying you don't have one at all. What I'm saying is our identity needs to change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, that's how you get saved. You can't be saved if you're not in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The word actually new means new species, new type. Is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. If you look earlier, we may look at it a little later on. But in verse 15 of that chapter, he says that we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh anymore. In other words, we don't look at Christ based on the fact of what his skin color was, what his eye color was, what his hair color was, how long it was, what he looked like. We don't regard him that way anymore. Because we can't see him with these natural eyes. Because he's not... That, the, the Christ that walked on the earth then is not physically here now. He's at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, we don't know Him in those terms anymore. Well, how do we know Him? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So Paul is saying there, in the same way, we're not to regard each other any longer according to the flesh. So when I look out with my natural eyes right now, on this Sunday morning, I see all different color skins. Well, not all different colors, but I see different colors, skins represented by different racial backgrounds. I see different hair colors. I see different clothing and attire. I see different facial demeanors. I see different ages represented by how we appear. I see different sizes. Beyond that, we have different economic backgrounds. We all come here and what what we have in common, what we have in common is that we all belong to Christ. We're part of His body. And when you come to Christ, who you used to be, you let go of. Your identity, you let go of. When you were baptized, that was left in the water. That was left in who, what you came out of. You have a new identity. You are a child of God and a member of His body. That's who we are. There's nothing wrong with looking back and knowing where you came from, but don't hang on to it as who you are. 
That's why Paul talks, I think, to Timothy about the, the use, the, 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 um, the fruitless effort of going back and, and dwelling on your genealogy. I'm not saying anything wrong with knowing where your genealogy. Don't, don't take this to extreme. But some people go back and they get, they get devout, sucked up in that, absorbed in that, as if that's who they are. Those people are dead. No disrespect, but if you were to open their graves, there's dust in there. Hebrews chapter 12, Paul begins by saying, Therefore, having such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us, he's talking about all the people that he listed in chapter 11. They're not walking around in bodies anymore. They've gone on, and the picture there is they're part of the body of Christ also. And it's as if they're rooting, they're looking over the banister of heaven, looking down at the people Paul was writing to, encouraging them, because the people Paul was talking about in chapter 11 have a stake in how well we finish. Because they're part of us, and we're part of them. It's just so strong in me. We have to renew our mind to establish a new identity of who we really are. We're not just part of Him. Because we're part of Him, we're part of one another. That's our new identity. Well, I better go on. Let's go on to... um, Colossians chapter 1. My purpose in this part is just to show you there are many places in the Bible where it says the same thing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I therefore rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. For the sake of his body, which is the church. And then go over to chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. In one body, and be thankful. Now let's go back to Ephesians 4. And now I want to build on this. So we've established that we are physically, actually, not symbolically, you are, together we are, at Faith Christian Center, a part of the physical body of Christ on the earth. That means we are His hands, We are his voice. We are his ears. When Christ wants to put his arm around somebody, he can't come down from the right hand of God and put an arm around them because he doesn't have a physical arm anymore. You're that arm. When he wants to look in someone's eyes and give that look of love and assurance 
that he would give to his disciples and people that were hurting around him. He can't come down off of his throne and he can't look physically in someone's eyes because he has a spiritual body in heaven, but you are his physical body on this earth. So when he has you look in someone's eyes, it's him looking in their eyes through you. At the end of the service, I've been asked to lay hands on someone with some of the elders. And as I was praying in preparation for that this morning, what I was reminding myself is that when I lay hands on that child, it's not my hands I'm laying. My hands can't do anything. Not not to get rid of sickness. But His hands can. I'm laying His hands on that child. I'm speaking... When I speak his words, he's speaking over that child. Several places in the book of Acts, the the apostle Paul in one place and the apostle Peter in one place says, Jesus Christ healed you. Jesus heals you. They couldn't do anything. Peter says, don't look at us as if by our own piety or our own power we raised this man who'd never walked before. That's who you are. Physically, his body on the earth. Physically, his body on the earth. But now there's another aspect of this that we must look at. Back in Ephesians chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. So if you and I are his body on the earth, who is he? He is the head. So he is the head and we are the body. But it's one body. Because if they were to separate your head from your body, neither lives. So your body only lives because it's joined to your head and your head only lives because it's joined to your body. So just as much as we are one body and members of one another, collectively we belong to Him and He's the head. Now let's look at some other verses that say that and then we'll talk about what that significance is. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We read this verse earlier. The earlier verses say that he's been raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. And verse 21 says, He's far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. Verse 22 the one we just read before. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So he is the head and we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to Colossians, back to Colossians chapter 1.
verse 17. And he is before, he Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist or exist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. He is the head of the body, which is the church, which is you and me. Chapter 2, verse 19. You getting an impression here? Let's start in verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding to those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now what he's saying here is talking about religion. He said religion appeals to our fleshly mind. Because he's talking earlier about holding on to what's the grace that's been given to you and not being distracted by teachings that come along that try to draw you off into things that are not will, not will not establish your relationship with God, like the worship of angels, the kinds of foods that you eat or not eat. He's not saying don't eat healthy foods. What he's saying is your salvation, your relationship with God, is not based on what you eat or don't eat. They, don't, they can't make you any, any more righteous in God's eyes or any worse in God's eyes. They can mess up your arteries... They can eat holes in your stomach. They can ruin your body, but they cannot affect your relationship with God because your relationship with God is not based on what you eat or don't eat. It's not based on worship of angels. It's not based on anything you do on the outside. So what he's talking about here is what religion does, false religion as he calls it here. Sounds spiritual. Makes you feel holy because you're only eating certain types of foods. Because you're gaining control of yourself. But see, that's the illusion. You're gaining control of yourself, where in reality, you fall into pride. Not being built up by your fleshly mind. So now he's going to tell you how to think about yourself so that you won't be built up in a fleshly or carnal mind. How to think about yourself the right way. And this is how you get cheated of your reward. This is how you get distracted. This is how you get pulled off course, which we'll also see when we study further in Ephesians 4, these scriptures, because he talks about being children, not dumping children, tossed about to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the deceitful trickery of men. So one of the signs of immaturity, one of the risks of being immature as a Christian is you're easily led astray by things that look spiritual, but they're not. Because you're not walking in a spiritual maturity, you can't discern if that's where you are. You can't discern what's really spiritually spiritual from what's carnal because lots of things look good. When we were in Bible school, we lived from the beginning in, a, in a, um, an apartment complex. And in that apartment complex, there were a number of students going to this Bible school. And, and one of these was a young man that we kind of befriended because 
uh, his children were going to the same uh, Christian school that our older children were going to, and they had become close, so we kind of, you know, were friends with them, sort of. We're riding in the car, and as we're riding in the car, there's some, my wife is there, and there's, I think, another woman, also a student, and he starts telling them things about their life that they never told him. And that kind of got my attention. It certainly got the lady's attention. And afterwards, I was, whether it was Anita or, or this, Anita and this other woman, I don't remember, but they were saying, wow, he must be a prophet of God. And yet something in here troubled me about him. Something in here troubled me. I didn't feel peace when he talked about these things. What I sensed was, I sensed a device to, to, to get them to open up to him I sensed a control. I didn't sense a peace. I didn't sense an an edifying of them. It just didn't feel right in here. And I told them, I said, be very careful because the devil can appear, the Bible says, as an angel of light. He isn't one, but he can appear as one. When Moses came to, to tell Pharaoh that God had said, let my people go, Moses performed some miracles in the beginning. He turned the the, the water into blood. But then Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. So there was a power that the devil had working through those magicians up to a point. So just because you see something supernatural, just because something looks or sounds spiritual, you cannot go by what things look like on the outside. But if all you ever do is learn to be a carnal Christian, you simply walk by what you see. You simply relate to God by your senses. Then what happens is you cannot discern what's God from what's not God because you walk by appearances. And that's why... The church that's not spiritual, that has grown up spiritually, cannot discern. The church that Paul wrote one of his most powerful letters to, the churches at Corinth, we've talked about this before, were very carnal. They thought they were spiritual because the gifts of the Spirit were flowing through them. We've talked about that over and over again, and yet they couldn't tell that. They couldn't identify where they were spiritually. So one of, the, one of the marks of immaturity is we're easily misled by things that look good and sound good. We're always running over here and running over there. Instead of sitting where God put me to sit and doing what, learning what God's teaching me so that I can be placed in the right part of the body that God's called me to be. I mean, imagine if your body did that. Well, we do deal with that. We want to eat what looks good, like that chocolate cake. So that's why they put them in those windows when you walk in at first. I want some of that. <laughs> so I'm going to save room. I'm not going to eat all my veggies. I'm not going to eat all the, you know, the chicken that's good for me. I want to save some room for that. Because I'm making decisions based on what things look like and what things taste like, not on what I know as a man is good for me, as an adult of what is good for me. 
Now, if I'm starting to step on some toes, we're going to change in just a minute. And so God wants us to grow and mature beyond that stage so that we're not vulnerable. We spent a lot of time last year talking about walking in the light, learning to discern truth. Because that's what it requires in order to be mature is we have to be discerning of what's God and what's not God, what's real in God and what's not real in God. And so that's what the Apostle, that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. And how do we do that? How, when things are going on around us and we can't tell what's God and what's not God, how do we do that? How do we grow up? Because we're going to see that when we get back into Ephesians 4. How is it we grow up past that stage where we're vulnerable to that? How is it that we do that? The next verse tells you. You get in trouble by not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with an increase which is from God. What he's saying here is the way we get distracted is by not holding fast to the head of the body. Now what's the head do? What does your head do for you? Besides hold your hat. (laughs) Your head... Is the, is the part of you that sees what things are really like. That hears what things are really like and then processes what you see and processes what you hear and based on that processing makes decisions of what you ought to do. So your head takes all the other input that your body gives it and your head from all that input makes a decision of what's best for the body and says, that's what we're going to do. And your body is designed in such a way that it all begins to work cooperatively together to carry out what your head has decided is the right thing to do. And that's how God created us to be in relationship with Him. Some time ago, we did a study that took us back into Genesis, and we saw that when God created man in the beginning, the first thing, the only thing he told him not to do was to not eat of a particular tree. Remember that? And what tree was it? The knowledge of good and evil. And what we shared at that time is that God was saying to them there was a boundary there. God's saying, I know how I made you. I'm your creator. I know what I created you to be able to handle, and I know what I created you not prepared to handle. So what he was saying is, I did not prepare you to handle on your own the knowledge of good and evil. So that you could discern good from evil and then know what to do. What did God make them to do? He made them so that they would be in relationship with Him because He knew how to discern good from evil and He knew how to make decisions on the base of right and wrong. And when the serpent came, or Satan came through the serpent to tempt them, 
He was basically saying, God's keeping something from you because if you, he, you've made you like him, you can handle the knowledge of good and evil on your own. Why? Because the serpent knew they couldn't handle the knowledge of good and evil on their own, that if they took that responsibility upon themselves, that they were open season for him. And man's been that way ever since. Well, we think we're so smart that we can decide what's right and wrong and what's good and evil on our own, apart from God. We're making ourselves our own God. And then we make our own decisions based on what we think is right and wrong. We are now living in a world where the predominant teaching is there is no right or wrong. It's what you think is right or wrong. If you want to know what a great job we've all been doing with this knowledge of good and evil and how well we've been handling it, just turn on the news. Look at how we're treating one another. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about in the world. That's what it's like for the body to function apart from the head. Because what the body does is collect the information. So when you pick up, when you go out to eat or wherever you have your afternoon meal or whatever meal, next meal you have, and you, you go to pick it up, God has designed it in such a way that your nose is going to smell the food. Not just to make it attractive to you, but also so that you can get some sense of whether it's good or not. So if you pick up that glass of milk to drink it and it smells sour... That's the information going from your nose into your brain. Now your head's got to decide what to do with that information. But what if your nose decided on its own? What if your mouth says, I don't care what it smells like, I want to drink it anyway? Some of you have done that before. And then your stomach questions, why did you do that? The point here is this. We're all parts of his body, but there's one head. And what does the head do? The head decides what's right from wrong. And then the head tells us what the body's going to do. It's the will that the head decides that's carried out. And every part of your body is called on ordained to help you body, help your head carry out what it decides to do. You cannot do it. Your your head cannot carry out the decisions you make apart from your body. But on the other hand, when your body starts carrying out things that are contrary from what your head's decided, then you become diseased. There's something wrong. And now they have to work at what's wrong. There's a disconnect between the head and the part of the body that's not functioning the way it's supposed to function. He is the head. So what does that mean? He's the head. That means the head decides the will that's to be carried out. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses we've looked at before, but I want to show you examples of this. And 
And this is very similar to what we've been reading in Ephesians. And we've been through this before. He's talking here to this, this immature church. And he's saying, although there are different gifts of the Spirit, there's one operation. Although there's different manifestations, it's still the same Spirit. So what he's saying is, although they manifest differently and operate differently, it's just one Spirit operating behind it. So he's talking about the diversities of these gifts and the way they function, but it's still one Spirit, one God, and one Lord. But look at verse 11. But it's one and the same Spirit who works all these things, distributing to each one, each person, individually, as He, the Spirit, wills. So in His manifesting Himself, He distributes those gifts as He chooses. So the decision of how God uses you doesn't come from you. When you come to Christ and you become part of His body, then God doesn't have this great um, uh, 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 counseling session where He brings together people that take aptitude tests and say, well, what are you best suited for to serve Him? Actually, it's the other way around. He gives you the aptitude that you're going to need because He's already decided what your function is going to be. Just like the cells that make up the nerves in the retina of your eye are designed such a way as to perform that function. So where if you were to take those cells and use them instead to make up your fingernails, you're going to have a problem. Especially when you get a manicure or cut your fingernails. Because they're nerve cells. They're all cells of your body, but they've been designed and made in such a way they were designed around the function that they were made to perform. And we'll say later on, one of the ways to discern what part of his body are you by looking at how you're made. Because God makes you in such a way as to perform the function that he's called you to ordain and ordained you to be. But he's decided that. I didn't choose to be a preacher. I didn't choose to be a... My wife certainly didn't choose for me to be one. When she married me, I wasn't one. Oh, we weren't even saved. She knew I was a lawyer. That's what I'd wanted to be. I was happy at it. Successful. In a large firm. I was at the peak of my success. And people said, oh, how can you give all that up? What a sacrifice you've made. It's not a sacrifice. I didn't give anything up. God revealed to me what I was made to do. Now I've got to decide whether I'm going to do what he decided he formed me to do or whether I'm going to do what I want to do. Whether I'm going to be the head or he's going to be the head. And there's some of us out there struggling because we're trying to be the head of our lives. And you're not made to be that way. When you try to be the head of your own life, your life becomes overwhelming because you're trying to handle something you were not equipped to handle. So our purpose is to seek God and discover what part am I, what did you design me to be because you're the head. And then once I find it, now I've got to allow him to train me and equip me. 
then we as a body have to realize it's not, we don't come together and vote on what we're going to do. There are many churches that do that. They have committees of people not called by God to tell the person that has been called by God how to do what God wants to do. That's like a group of the sheep telling the shepherd where they need to go. He's the head. That means every part of his body is, is called, designed, and connected to the body to carry out his will. Well, let's look at a couple of other scriptures. Let's go to verse 28. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Verse 28. And God has appointed in the church. God has appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that, miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. God has appointed in the church because He is the head. It's His will that's carried out. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. You don't need to turn there because it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father... Our Father, our Head, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the rest of it? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The way around. We live so much of our lives forming our own goals and our own plans. There's nothing wrong with that. But our whole perspective is that our life is around whether we've achieved those goals and accomplished those things and measure up to my brother or Aunt Susie or we've reached this goal or plateau in life. I'm not where I thought I ought to be at this point in life. I'm not where I think I should be. I'm falling short or I'm doing great. I'm doing a great job. Whatever it is. Our perspective is measured by where we think we ought to be and what we think we ought to be doing. Or somebody else tells us we are and what we ought to be doing. When our perspective needs to be, what did you make me to do? And now that I find that, what is it that you want done? Understand that with all the issues of our life and all the things we see and need to be done, there's things he wants done. Jesus said to his parents when he was 12 years old, when they found him back in the, in the, when they had left Jerusalem and they realized he wasn't with them because they traveled in a big caravan of people and discovered that he wasn't with them, they went back and found him in the temple at 12 years of age, talking with the scribes and reasoning with the Pharisees. And, and, and the, he said to his parents, didn't you realize I'd be about my father's business? Literally in the Greek it says, my father's, whatever's his that I'd be about it. See, Jesus had that perspective. He understood who he was and why he was here. I'm going to read some scriptures to you. You don't need to turn there. But I want to read some scriptures to you to show you 
He is our model in this. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, had no will of his own. And you can look at that and say, my goodness, this man was bound up. He had no freedom. He had no decide, made no decisions on his own. I mean, some psychologists would have a field day with that. Let me read some of the scriptures to you. Because I don't want to have you turn there because I don't want to take the time. I'm just going to read them to you. Many of them you're familiar with. John 4, verse 34, when the disciples had come to him, and he was ministering, talking to the woman at the well, and, and they had come with food, and they were amazed to see him sitting there talking to this woman. And Jesus said to them, My food, John 4, 34, My food, what satisfies me, what strengthens me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John five nineteen. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son... The, now, you remember who we're talking about now. We're talking about the second person of the Godhead. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Son of the living God. He said, he, he answered them and said unto them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. What he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. In other words, just as my hand right now and my feet are doing what my head decides to do. My head has decided to come down on this platform in order to talk to you at this moment. Therefore, my feet and all of my body, which is involved in balancing together, is working to accomplish that purpose. They don't have a will of their own. They don't have a desire. My feet say, I'm tired. I want to stay up there. We come up and down these stairs enough. I want to take a vacation. I want to stay up there. The rest of you go down. Well, I'd fall, wouldn't I? They don't question. They just do what I decided to do. Because it's my will, the will of my, that my mind has decided on, that my body is committed to carry out. Why? Because my body knows it's my body and works together to carry it out. John 5.30 I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. For I've come down from heaven, not verse John 6, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, for I, that I do nothing of myself as my Father taught me, I speak these things. John 14, 9, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And I suppose the ultimate one is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is on his knees and says, Not my will, but your will be done. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we'll close with this. What are we saying today? 
Well, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that we are the body of Christ. We've talked about the fact that we are individually members of his body and therefore we're members of one another. But this morning what we're talking about is although not only are we members of his body and members of one another, our relationship of the body to the head is that he is the head. It is his will. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. I'm going to say that again. That's why you're here on earth. You're here in his mind because he has something that he wants to do through his body. And he's given you and me the privilege of being part of his body through whom he can carry out his will. We started this whole series by talking about we have to change how we see ourselves because we all tend to see ourselves or most of us see ourselves as a bunch of individuals that come together on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights and whenever else because we belong to Faith Christian Center. We're all Christians and we're glad to see each other. That is not how God sees us. And if we don't get beyond that point, then we will never carry out the fullness of His will. We'll be a nice church. People will be blessed coming in here. People will be saved. But we will not carry out His will. Matthew chapter 7. By the way, Jesus said in John John chapter 15... I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart, separated from me, you can do nothing. And yet we do all kinds of things separated from him. There have been great churches built separated from him. Huge churches built separated from him. There have been people saved separated from him. There have been great institutions built, great deeds accomplished, great humanitarian efforts done, good things, but separated from Him because they weren't His will for them to do. It's like your foot deciding, I don't want to have all the pressure on me all the time. I want to do something else. I'll do something good. I know generally what we were going to do, so I'll do, I'll do something else. But that's not what the foot's purpose is. My own conviction, and I believe there's scripture to back it up, but I'm just going to say my conviction is that God assigns people to churches. And it makes sense because this is part of his body. And God assigns the individual parts to this section of his body. Matthew chapter 7. These are words that are sobering, but they're real. Jesus speaks them in love. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the head of my Father. In other words, he who does the will of the head in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, 
Have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful things in your name? In other words, we performed great acts and great service, wonderful things. Where is our reward? What does he say to that? Depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, you were not connected to me. Does your head know your hands? And your hands know where your head is, right? Because you've got an itch here. When you comb your hair, you brush your teeth, your hands better know where your head is. So your hands know where your head is, and your head knows where your hands are. Why? Because they're connected together. They're part of each other. And Jesus is saying, there's some of you out there that call me Lord, Lord, but you're not connected to me. And you're doing wonderful things on your own, of your own initiative, because you think they're good to do. And they may be wonderful things, and you should be applauded because they're great things, but I never asked you to do them. You did them on your own because you looked at something and decided that was right. That was the right thing to do. And you took it into your hands to do it on your own initiative. Now understand when someone does that, two things happen. First of all, if they're out doing something else that someone else was called to do, most likely they're getting in that other person's way. And they're not doing what they were called to do. Because the concept here of God is not that we're all a bunch of individuals that go out and do as good a works as we can and then stand before God and get a reward. And then we're in competition with each other. I don't know. Jerome's done some pretty good things. I don't feel too good when I hang around him because, you know, he does a lot of good stuff. And a lot, some people don't, a lot of people don't see the good things he does. And I don't know. See, that's comparing myself to someone else. But he's doing what he was supposed to do. You'll be judged for whether you did what you were called to do, not based on what you did. Well done, good, and faithful servant. To be faithful, you have to be faithful to someone and be faithful to do what they told you to do. He didn't say, well done, servant, that did a lot of good works. And here he says, you come to me in that day and says, Lord, Lord, we did many things in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Look at the rest of the verse. You who practice lawlessness. You who did what you thought was good on your own, not what I told you to do. Lawlessness means I'm not under anyone else's authority but mine. And I can cloak that with good things to do. So I'm doing good things, but I'm not functioning as the part of his body that he's ordained me to be. And even if I am, I'm not carrying out, collectively carrying out, his will. See, it's not you and I individually doing His will. It's whether we together do His will. Yeah. Ephesians 4 says, until we all come. To, I mean, your will was to come here today. Suppose, I don't know, 
Suppose your left foot just didn't want to feel like it. So that's okay. We'll just leave you home. So you went to the kitchen, took out a big knife, cut off your left foot, banded it up, and the rest of you came in here. You would never even think of doing that. Because the only way you come is if all of you comes. The only way his will gets done is if all of us take our place. Well, what is the measure of this? How do we know whether we're functioning as his, with him as the head or functioning on our own? First of all, the first clue, he says, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. First John, by the way, just First John 3, 4 says lawlessness is sin. The essence of sin is doing what I want to do. Now, let's go on. Look what he says. Therefore, we've learned what that means. That means that's based on what he's just said. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. What was the difference? What's he talking about here? He's talking about whose will are we carrying out? Whose will are we carrying out? We are the body of Christ. The whole body of Christ is much bigger than what's on the earth right now. It consists of every Christian that's ever lived. But a portion of that body is on the earth right now. And a portion of that portion is assigned here at Faith Christian Center. And you have been called, if you have, to be a part of this portion of his body. And this portion of his body has been given an assignment. And we are in preparation now for carrying that out. And how well we fulfill that purpose and carry out that function will depend on how well we mature together. 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 To carry out His will. It's not about you or me. He loves us. We're set in Him. God accepts you right where you are. This is not about whether we're accepted or God loves us or not. It's fulfilling His purpose. See, Jesus' perspective was this. He didn't walk around worrying or thinking about how things affected Him. His whole concern was how this affects His Father and His Father's will. Everything Jesus did, he reflected on how it carried out his Father's will. That was his whole focus. But wasn't it interesting that every time the Father speaks from heaven, what does the Father say? That's my boy. That's my son, in whom I am well pleased. As a child 
And we'll talk about this down the road. As a child begins to mature and grow, there's a process of growing in awareness of what he's part of. A little baby only knows that he's hungry. Doesn't even understand what that is. He just cries when he doesn't like something. And then as that baby becomes aware of people around them, they, they go through different stages, as psychologists tell us, where they become aware and they may be a little afraid because now they realize there's people out there other than them. And they know their mother and their father you know, in, a good, in a healthy family. And they grow up. And then they be, as they begin to grow and mature, they become aware that there are others in this family besides them. Then they begin to realize they're part of something larger than themselves. And they begin to realize as, because they're part of something larger than themselves, they have responsibilities that they're now expected to carry out. Like take out the trash, pick your room up. That's why those chores are important. Because it teaches that child that they're part of something other than themselves. And begin to think on a scale that's bigger than just me. But whether our family prospers, our family's going on vacation, whether our house is clean, whether our, whether, whatever, whatever the thing is, we begin to see this together. And all of that is training so that as that child grows into adulthood, into adolescence and adulthood, the child begins to look at things through their father's eyes and their parents' eyes. And ultimately, God's pattern for that is that that will be the next step. We'll begin to look at things through his eyes. It's part of the process of growing and maturing is realizing that we're part of something bigger than ourselves that has a purpose that's beyond my own pleasure and my own welfare. But my own pleasure and welfare is directly connected to the welfare of the family that I'm part of. Your welfare, my welfare, my happiness and contentment is directly connected to the happiness and contentment and welfare of the body to whom we belong, his body. We are his body, physically on the earth. Individually, different parts of that body. And he is the head of the body. That means it's his will, his pleasure, his desire that we are here to carry out. And true contentment and true freedom comes in fulfilling what he made you to do. I said a few minutes ago, that a psychologist looking at these scriptures about Jesus would say he's got a problem. He's the most bound up person I've ever seen because he doesn't have a will of his own. He's not free to express himself. We've raised kids think they need to be free to express themselves. (laughs) Develop their own individuality. That's what you're going to live the rest of your life dealing with is the expression of their individuality. I don't mean press them down and hold them back. I don't mean that. But Jesus completely lived his will for his father. So he must have been the most bound up person that's ever lived. But it's just the opposite. He was the freest person that ever lived. Circumstances didn't stop him. No matter what people did around him, his staff deserted him. One of his own staff rebelled against him and was a traitor. And none of those affected him. Why? Because his eyes and his focus and his purpose were all set on his head. And the Bible tells us that because of that, he's been highly exalted and given a name that's above every name, that at the mention of his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a name that he earned because he perfectly carried out the will of his Father. There is a reward beyond what you can imagine 
for being faithful to take your place and do what you're called to do. Paul says at the end of his life, I know in whom I put my trust. I've run my race. I've finished my course. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There's a reward that's literally out of this world for being faithful to the head to whom we've been joined.